0: All right, let's open once again with a word of prayer. Father, we pray that you would help us to grasp the significance of what you have revealed in your word. We pray that you would use it to draw us close to you, to make us aware of the love and the mercy that you have lavished upon us, and we pray, Lord, that you would make it almost emotionally impossible for us to consider plunging headlong into evil that tempts us. Lord, keep us faithful, we pray. Use the scriptures to make us holy, we ask. We pray that you would answer Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians, that you would make us worthy of the calling that we have received in Christ Jesus. Amen. my professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, John D. Hanna, uh, once said, you know, if things are going well, look at your audience and see what you can get away with. And uh, things seem to be going well, so I'm going to take a chance here. And um, what I want to do is I I want to uh, begin with Hosea, and I want to think with you about the way that the covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai is treated as a marriage between God and Israel. And I want to go from Hosea to what I think is the fulfillment of that in Ephesians 5. Uh, and, 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 you know, if we, if we start thinking about the, the interpretive perspective of the biblical authors, uh, one aspect of their perspective is um, at Sinai the Lord married his people and we'll see that in Hosea. It's in the the Jeremiah 31 New Covenant passage, my covenant that they broke, though I was a husband to them. The Lord is presupposing that he was the husband of the people and it's all through Jeremiah you know as he's calling the adulterous, unfaithful wife uh, to repentance of her from her spiritual adultery against the Lord. And um, on the basis of what we see in Hosea and in Ephesians 5, I'm I'm then going to come back and um, look with you at the Song of Solomon. And this is where the risk is. I'm I'm going to propose that Solomon is conscious of the, the deeper meaning and significance of marriage and that Solomon, here's the risk, intends an allegorical meaning of the human marriage in the song. OK, so that's where we're going. Uh, don't stone me, I hope. You won't do that. Um, uh, we'll think together about these things. And I and I hope that, that what you'll conclude is that there, there's something to that. So l- let's just examine the scriptures and see if these things are so. Um, you're very familiar, I trust, with what happens in Hosea. Um, Hosea being commissioned in Hosea 1-2 to go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. It is, it is clearly stating, Hosea, you are going to live out in your personal experience the, this analogy between my relationship with Israel, that is going to be matched now by your relationship with Gomer. So you've got uh, the Lord as the husband, Israel as the unfaithful wife, Hosea as the husband, Gomer as the unfaithful wife. That's the analogy that's being worked out. Now this is, is, as I've indicated, built off of the understanding of the Sinai Covenant as a marriage. Uh, uh, There may be an earlier indication of this, But I think the earliest indication, the earliest um, overt statement that the Sinai covenant is being treated as a marriage comes in Exodus 34 when um, in verse 16, after verse 13 and following, they're they're told that they're to break down the pillars and cut down the asherim. And then verse 15, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods and you are invited you eat of his sacrifice and you take of their daughters for your sons and their daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods. All that language of whoring after the gods, it, it, it's, it's using the concept of marital infidelity to describe what um, what Israel will do when they commit idolatry. So that that seems to be, I think that's the earliest indication. If you find an earlier one, let me know. I want to know about it. Uh, I think that's the earliest overt indication that the covenant between Israel and Yahweh is being viewed as a marital covenant. And then um, in Hosea 2... um, as as Hosea is prophesying about what's going to happen, the first part of the chapter is warning about the um, devastation of the land, the exile that the people are going to experience. And then I want to pick this up in verse 14, because here again I think we get uh, indications that Hosea is assuming that Israel is married to Yahweh by means of the covenant. And then you get indications that that marital covenant is being broken and will be renewed. Okay, so let's look at Hosea chapter 2, verse 14 and following here. Hosea writes, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. Now, this this is uh, assuming that they've already been exiled. And what the Lord is saying essentially is, after I exile them, after the the time has passed, the appointed amount of time has passed. I'm going to allure her into the wilderness, which is reminiscent of the way that the Lord leads them out of Egypt, out to Mount Sinai. And then when he says, and speak tenderly to her, um, uh, the language here in Hebrew is, the Lord says, I will speak to her heart. Um, and, um, And then skip over the first part of verse 15 and look in the middle of verse 15 where we read, and there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. This seems to be invoking the time, well, at Mount Sinai, the Lord speaks the Ten Commandments and this is related in both Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. The Lord speaks the Ten Commandments and the people of Israel say to Moses, don't let him talk to us anymore. If he keeps talking to us, it will kill us. We cannot sustain this, Moses. You've got to go up on the mountain and get the law for us. And then here's where they say, I do, essentially. It's like, it's like the bride saying at the, at the altar before the bridegroom, I do. They say to Moses, whatever he reveals to you, we will do. And then the Lord says in Deuteronomy 5.29, they are right in all that they have spoken. In other words, that's what they should do. That's what they—that's sh- how they should respond, and this is good. You're going to come up and be a mediator. I'm going to give you the law, and then they are to obey it. That, I think, is what Hosea is invoking here in verse 15 when he says, And there she shall answer, as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. So there's going to be a new I do for this. Marital ceremony. We'll see more about the marriage in verses 16 and following. Let's go back to the first part of verse 15. The first part of verse 15, Hosea says, And there I will give her her vineyards and speak, I'm sorry, and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. Now, in, in, the, in the, uh, the assumed narrative here that Hosea is prophesying, What's going to happen is the land is going to be devastated. Back in verse uh, 3, at the end of that verse, the land is going to be made like a wilderness and Israel is going to be made like a parched land. So the land is going to be destroyed when the Babylonians come and they they break down the walls of Jerusalem and they destroy the temple and they carry the people off into exile. And now the Lord is saying, I'm going to bring them out into the wilderness and I'm going to speak tenderly to them and they're going to answer like they did when they came out of Egypt. And I'm going to give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. What he's saying is they're they're going to have a new chance at life in the land of promise. What's this bit about the valley of Achor? You You may remember that it was in the valley of Achor that Achan took the forbidden things. Now, think about where that event is situated in terms of Israel's history. They've come up out of Egypt through the, the wilderness, and, and they've demonstrated in the wilderness that they don't have the hearts they need to, to obey the Torah, to keep the covenant in the land. But then they, they have this new circumcision ceremony there in Joshua, where, where they recommit themselves to following the Lord, and they cross over the Jordan River in parallel to the crossing of the Red Sea, and they enter into the land, and they take Jericho, and then the second battle, I think it is, Almost immediately, they demonstrate in the land, we don't have the hearts we need to keep this covenant, to keep this land of promise. So the Valley of Achor, what I think think Hosea is saying here, is the Valley of Achor has become a portent of doom. The Valley of Achor, that event of Achan taking the forbidden things, is like a signal. Israel doesn't have the hearts they need. They will not keep the covenant. They are going to break it, and they will be exiled from the land. And what the Lord is saying is that's going to be reversed. We're not going to see the Valley of Achor anymore as a portent of doom. It's going to be a door of hope. You're going to re-enter the land, not with indications that you're going to be driven from it, but you're going to come in through a door of hope because because your hearts are going to be renewed. Verse 16, in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. So you'll answer as you did at Mount Sinai. I do, essentially. You'll call me my husband. No longer will you call me my Baal, for I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. Now, Hosea doesn't use the exact phrase that Jeremiah uses, new covenant, but Jeremiah got the idea from Hosea, and, and, and Hosea is just articulating it without the, the overt terminology when he says here in verse 18, and I will make for them a covenant on that day. So, the covenant will have been broken, they will have been driven into exile, and Jeremiah, he's just, he's just carrying out the trajectory that Hosea is articulating here when he actually uses that phrase. And then he says, I will make a covenant for them on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. Where do we read about the creeping things of the ground? Genesis 1, right? Genesis 1, 26, Genesis 1, 28, have dominion over the birds and the beasts and the creeping things. And and I think Hosea is using that phrase to indicate that This new covenant that he's speaking of, of, this this covenant renewal, is is reaching all the way back to God's original purposes when he put Adam in the Garden of Eden. And, And this new covenant is going to accomplish what God set out to do when he created the world. And then he says, and I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. Is that language familiar from anywhere? If you put your Biblical antennae up. Do you, do you, do you think of any passages where that language is used? Um, listen to this from Second Samuel chapter seven, verse ten. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel and I will give you rest from all your enemies. So th- there are lots of passages in the Old Testament that point to this, this time when the Lord is going to make his people lie down in safety. He's going to cut off all their enemies. He's going to have renewed their hearts so that they will no more need weapons. They're going to, as Isaiah says, beat the swords into plowshares, and they'll, they'll study war no more. And then he says in verse 19, and I will betroth you to me forever. Now betrothal language is clearly marital language, right? So the Lord is going to enter into this new marital covenant between himself and his people. And then and then, in language that's reminiscent of Exodus 34, 6, and 7, where which speaks of the Lord uh, by no means clearing the guilty, but overflowing with... with uh, steadfast love and truth. He says, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. So when the Lord saves them, he's not going to be bending the rules. He's not going to be breaking his own commandments. He's not going to be overlooking their sins. He's going to establish justice and righteousness, and he's going to be loving them and showing mercy to them. Verse 20, I will, show, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. So they're going to experience this intimacy. Uh, this, this line is very similar to Adam knew his wife and she conceived and bore a son and named him uh, Cain or whatever the case may be, Seth. Um, so so the, the intimacy between the Lord and his people uh, Hosea is indicated, indicating is approximated by the intimacy between a husband and wife in the marital covenant. And he goes on, but let me take you over to um, <coughs> something that I think uh, is very could could be perplexing over in Hosea um, actually, let's look at let's look at a couple of other texts here in Hosea. Let me, just, let me just point out Hosea 3, 5. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. So there's, a, there's an indication of um, the Davidic hope. And then look at the end of chapter 5. In Hosea 5, 4, 14, the Lord says, For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. He's describing here what's going to happen when the Babylonian army comes and devastates the land. And, and what he's saying, figuratively, is it, I, I'm going to be the lion. I am visiting justice. I am visiting righteousness. I'm bringing the curses of the covenant against the people. And when I do this, it'll be like an individual human male we'll call him Ephraim, symbolizing the whole people of Israel, is going to be struck down by the lion under the wrath of God. Verse 15, I will return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. Now, we just saw back in 3.5, afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God. And both of those texts are picking up on Deuteronomy 4, but from there you will seek the Lord and you will search. You will find him when you search for him with all your heart. So after the exile, they're going to seek the Lord and the Lord's going to restore them. Verse 15 of Hosea 5, I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. And then it's as though Hosea is providing... The, the the response here in chapter 6 for how they should speak when they seek the Lord. He says in six one, Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us, that He may heal us. He has struck us down, and He will bind us up. The lion struck them down. He's going to restore us. Hosea is treating the exile as though the individual man, Ephraim, was killed by the lion, and the Lord is going to raise that man Israel from the dead. Verse 2, after two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Um, so, so th- this is one of a number of third-day passages in the Old Testament. I'd love to uh, talk more about those afterward, but I don't re- really want to go into it now. I just want to say that um, the exile is depicted as the death of the nation And then the return from exile is depicted as resurrection from the dead. And I think Paul and uh, other New Testament authors see that being fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus. And it's setting in motion um, the the events, it's inaugurating the events of the end. Now look down at verse 7 where Hosea says, but like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. And I just want to register my opinion here, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, that what Hosea is doing is he's saying, just as Adam um, broke faith and transgressed and was exiled from uh, the land of Eden, so now Israel has broken faith, broken the covenant, and is being exiled from the land of of Israel. So that there's an analogy in Hosea's mind between the garden of Eden and the land of Israel, between Adam and and between Israel, and and then the exiles are also parallel. And then let me invite you to look over at Hosea chapter 10, and let's look at verse 15 and following. Here, um, Hosea says, "'Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel,' Bethel is one of the two places in the northern kingdom where they set up a golden calf, Dan and Bethel, because of your great evil. At dawn, the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off. And we just read at the end of chapter 5 about Ephraim, the man who personifies the nation, being struck down by the lion. And now we're reading about the king of Israel, the king of the north, being cut off at dawn. And then the next words, Hosea 11.1, When Israel was a child, I loved him and out of Egypt I called my son. Why does Hosea start saying that right after speaking of the king of Israel being cut off at dawn? Here's what I think is happening. The cutting off of the king of Israel is a way of speaking of the exile, okay? The Babylonian army is going to come. They're going to break down the walls. They're going to kill the people. They're going to carry people off into exile. Judgment, Uh, falling of the curses of the covenant. And then Hosea says... When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. You're getting this connection between um, Adam, Luke 3, calls the son of God, and Israel, Exodus 4.22, you shall say to Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son, let my son go. Now the people of Israel are personified as Ephraim, this, this son of God. He's going to be struck dead, and what Hosea is saying here is, the exodus from egypt guarantees the new exodus hosea invokes the first exodus to to point to to point his audience to this new exodus that he's going to accomplish so the king of israel is going to be cut off they're going to be exiled from the land but remember what i did at the exodus from egypt essentially i think is the way that this is working and then he talks about how the more they were called the more they went away they kept sacrificing to Baals and so forth. But then he says, verse 3, and it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. Then look down at verse 5. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king. I think he's developing this analogy or these analogies between the present and the past in Israel's history. So they went down and sojourned and were enslaved in Egypt. And Hosea is saying, they're not going back there, but they are going into exile to Assyria. Because they have refused to return to me. And then um, just as the Lord led his people out of Egypt, there's going to be this new exodus where he restores the people to the land. So look look at verse 9 and following. The Lord says, I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. He's saying, I'm not going to utterly wipe them out. I will not come in wrath. Verse 10, they shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. Earlier he referred to the lion striking them down, but now the lion is going to be gathering them back. When he roars, verse 10, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. So... Hosea, in this, in this whole chapter and all through his prophecy, seems to be making these comparisons between the exile and then the new exodus and the return from exile and the new covenant and all of those things, an analogy between that and what the Lord has done in Israel's past at the, at the exodus and at other points. Um, they return to the land, but no bridegroom arises no messianic king arises they return to the land but they don't experience a new covenant you know they, they they make a firm covenant in writing at the at in Nehemiah chapter 10 end of chapter 10 going into chapter 11 of Nehemiah and and you look at that covenant and the covenant that they're that they're binding themselves to obey is the mosaic covenant so So I think that in some ways, Ezra and Nehemiah and the others who returned to the land, they they get back to the land and they think, okay, we've returned from exile, but we still haven't experienced this this new covenant that God has promised, that that Jeremiah spoke of and that Hosea spoke of. And then um, Jesus comes, and in Matthew chapter 8, these people say to him, I'm sorry, it's Matthew chapter 9, The disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Why is he talking about himself as though he's the bridegroom? He's talking about himself as though he's the bridegroom because he's the one who's going to initiate this this new covenant between God and his people. He's the one who's coming to inaugurate this new covenant. And this new covenant is going to be a marriage just as the Sinai covenant was. You, You see the same thing when they say to John the Baptist, they, they, or John the Baptist is testifying, and he says in John 3 28, You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. So, so John and, and Matthew are presenting Jesus as the bridegroom who is going to inaugurate this new marital covenant between God and His people. And if we, if we look at things this way, I think it, it's a natural thing for Paul to say in Ephesians 5 when he quotes uh, Genesis 2, saying in verse 31, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So he, he, he makes that statement from Genesis 2. And then he says in verse 32, this mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And if, if I'm sure you've studied this passage and I'm sure you'll agree with me that Paul seems to be saying that the reason God invented marriage was for people to have a concept of the nature of the relationship between Christ and Christ the bridegroom, and the church, the people that he would redeem. God invents marriage so that we'll have a framework for understanding the relationship between Jesus and the church. Now, if you grant me all that, I think when we go to the Song of Solomon, we, we, we find something that though the, the language may... if if we think of the the language in terms of of, uh, chords and and the connections between these passages in terms of strings, though the pattern may have a different uh, arrangement and design, the feel of the fabric is biblical. The feel of the fabric is the same as what we have seen elsewhere. So as we we think about the Song of Solomon together, um, I want first before we look at the Song of Solomon, to remind you of Psalm 45, which is the closest parallel or the closest, closest analogy to the Song of Solomon in the Bible. Like Song of Songs, Psalm 45 is a wedding song. So he in verse 1, he's addressing his verses to the king, and then down in verse... Um, 10, he says, hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your fa- your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. So there's this wedding song where what appears to be a foreign princess is being married to a Gentile bride, is being married to the king of Israel. And in the midst of this remarkable song, psalm, as, as the psalmist is addressing the king... He says in verse 1, my heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. Verse 2, you are the most handsome of the sons of men. Verse 3, gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, the people's fall under you. It's as though he's, he's describing the, the, the king of Israel, the Messiah, the anointed one from the line of David, experiencing the promise, ask of me and I will give the nations your inheritance from Psalm 2. Then he says in verse 6, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And there's no change in subject. The psalmist seems to be addressing the king of Israel as God. Now, I think that he can do this because in the ancient Near East, there is a very close connection between the king of a people and the God of that people, so that that the king is in a sense the unique representative of the God. So I think this would not be jarring, even for an Israelite who who believes in uh, a monotheistic God. There's only one living and true God, you know, hero Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. I think the Israelites would say, yes, but humanity is God's image and likeness. And the King of Israel is the representative human. He's the image and likeness of God. He's the, he's the Son of God, in a sense. So there's this close connection between God and the King, between the throne of God and the throne of the King. And then probably also there's this census plenior uh, reality where, in this occasion, this son of Korah is uh, speaking better than he knows in that the, the, uh, the king of Israel ultimately is going to be God incarnate. But I draw you here because I think this psalm shows, in a wedding context, a close connection between the king of Israel and the God of Israel. Now, if we've got if we've got a meaning of marriage that's articulated by Paul but is, is conceptually similar to the way that Matthew and John are talking about the new covenant between Israel and uh, God uh, where, where the, the, the one who initiates this covenant is going to be the bridegroom and it matches what we see with Hosea and Gomer where the prophet represents the Lord and Gomer represents Israel, and that goes all the way back to the Sinai Covenant, then if we've got a biblical author who's trained in the Scriptures, as I think Solomon was, understands the Bible, understands that, that there is a deeper significance to marriage, then I think when we come to a song like this, the Song of Solomon, we should be open to the idea that the marriage depicted here goes beyond a merely human, only human marriage. And, and at this point, I want to give you dictionary.com's definition of the word allegory. Okay? Um, if, you, if you look up dictionary.com, if you look up the word allegory, it's not going to give you some treatise from Philo or Origen. It's not going to tell you there's this free association between ideas and concepts. It's going to tell you something... Uh, this is a rough quotation. There, there's a use of a physical object to represent a deeper or higher spiritual meaning. Now, that's not crazy, is it? And I'm not advocating a kind of allegory that's just sort of, uh, let me just kind of open my, uh, my mind and make this mean whatever I want it to mean. That's not what I'm, what I'm advocating. I'm simply saying that the physical reality of marriage points beyond itself to a deeper spiritual meaning. I think that's a, a definition of allegory that's acceptable. I think that's a definition of allegory that matches what Paul does in Ephesians, um, Galatians chapter 4. This is allegorically speaking, and then he starts talking about Sarah and Hagar. And you look at what Paul does there, and it matches the meaning of that Genesis text, right? So the, the Galatians are being tempted to do something in their flesh to accomplish what God has promised. And Paul says that's just like Abraham going into Hagar and by what's possible for human beings accomplishing what God has promised. What you need to do is believe like Abraham did. And then just as Abraham believed and it was reckoned for him as righteousness and what's not possible by means of human flesh, Isaac being born of Sarah so also you'll be justified by faith, miraculously by God. So there's, a, there's a, an allegorical kind of parallel, kind of clear connection that's not, not like what Origen and Philo were doing. Now with all that, let me invite you to look at Song of Songs 3, uh, 6 and following. Here's, here's what I um, am sub- suggesting about this passage. I think that as in... and and really the whole book. As in Psalm 45, Solomon is presenting the male character of Solomon in the Song of Songs, who I don't think should be taken as the literal historical Solomon. I think what Solomon is doing here is presenting an idealized version of himself, the, the descendant of David, the anointed king of Israel, to whom God has given wisdom, without all the sinful failures and idolatry and multiplied wives and all the rest. Uh, Solomon is presenting this idealized figure uh, coming up to Jerusalem for this wedding. And look at what we have here in, in verse 6 and following. The, the bride apparently says, what is that, or, or we, we could render it, who is this coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke? Turn on your biblical antennae, where do we think of columns of smoke coming up from the wilderness entering into Jerusalem? We think of coming out of Egypt, passing through the wilderness, and then then they come into the land. And then she she goes on here in verse 6, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense with all the fragrant powders of the merchant. Uh, That terminology, you you, you do like a concordance search of myrrh and frankincense and you find Uh, the mixture that was used in the anointing of the tabernacle. Verse 7, Behold, it is the litter of Solomon. Around it are 60 mighty men. you know what a litter is? A litter is one of these boxes that's carried on poles. It's maybe got a canopy or like a tent kind of thing over it, and it's carried on poles. Have we seen a, a box carried on poles, surrounded by an army, come through the wilderness, led by a pillar of Smoke and fire? Yeah, I think Solomon had uh, read about that kind of thing too. Verse 8: all of them wearing swords and expert in war, each with his sword at his thigh against terror by night. King Solomon made himself a carriage from the wood of Lebanon. What else was built from the wood of Lebanon? The temple, right? Yeah. Verse 10, he made its posts of silver, its back of gold, its seat of purple, its interior was inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go out, O daughters of Jerusalem, and look upon King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart. And then as you, as you go through this passage in, in chapter 4, when Solomon looks at um, his beloved, um Let's take, for instance, these these comparisons here in verse 1. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. If If you look at commentaries on the Song of Solomon, the commentators will say, oh, he's talking about the way she has dark hair and it's wavy. I don't think Solomon intends a physical correspondence with this comparison. I think what he's describing is a land under the blessing of God. It's a land that's fertile. It's a land that is, that is well-watered, that can support flocks and herds. It's a land that is experiencing God's favor. Then he says in verse 2, your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the, from the washing. Again, I don't think the point is, you don't have any missing teeth, and they're all white. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he's saying, look at the fertility and the abundance and the glory and the beauty. What he's doing is he's comparing her to the... The land of promise. And then down in verse 12 and following, he starts comparing her to the Garden of Eden. Verse 12, a garden locked is my sister, my bride. A spring locked, a fountain sealed, and so forth. So um, now, now think about the biblical resonance of this. Here's what I'm suggesting is happening. The king, the representative of Yahweh, is overcoming all alienation and hostility And he's entering into this marital covenant with this bride who, in some sense, I think represents the land of Israel, the people of Israel, and they're going to enjoy this covenant in this land of promise that is like the Garden of Eden. That's the story of the Bible, isn't it? So so I think what Solomon is doing in the Song of Songs is summarizing and interpreting the Bible's big story. Look with me over it. At one of the, the most the clearest indications that you get of this in chapter seven, um, let's let's start in. Actually, you know what? Let, let's take this difficult, I think difficult passage, in six eight. When when I when I uh, set out to preach through the Song of Solomon, um, I was I was terrified uh, of this book. Uh, and then I got into it, and I began to study, and I began to just sense that there was th- that what Solomon was doing was not some kind of ancient Near Eastern version of erotic poetry for people to use as a manual or something like that. That's not what he's doing. He's summarizing and interpreting the biblical the biblical story, and he's saying everything in an appropriate way. And it's all it's suggestive, but it's all holy and righteous and good. And then there's this statement in 6.8 that I just did not know what I was going to do with. Look at, look at 6.8 um, where Solomon says, again, he's comparing her to a fertile garden, the land of promise. Look at verse 4, you are beautiful as tears of my love, lovely as Jerusalem. He's explicitly comparing her to the land. Then verse 8, there are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. My dove... My perfect one is the only one, the only one of her mother, pure to her who bore her. The young women saw her and called her blessed, the queens and concubines also, and they praised her. Now, um, I'm confident that any married man in the room would know that if he said to his wife, you know, I've got all these other women around, but you're the only one, it would not go over very well. And I don't think it would go over well for Solomon either. And here's where I think, I, I say, I think he's presenting an idealized version of himself because notice how verse 8, he doesn't say, I have 60 queens and 80 concubines. He just says there are. And then he starts talking about her being the unique and only one. And, and I'm not the only person who's come to this conclusion. Um, Andrew Steinman, who's written this huge 1,500-page commentary on the Song of Song, of Song of Songs, he argues this. Um, that, that what, what uh, the male character in the psalm is depicted as doing is saying something like this, I'm the king, we have access and, and interaction with these other kings, and we know 60 queens, and, and we know 80 concubines, not that I have them, but there, there are these women that you know about, and there are virgins without number, and you're the only one that matters to me. Of all these other women that we're aware of, you're the one that matters to me. That doesn't work for the historical Solomon, But it could work for this this idealized Solomon, who is not a polygamist or um, however we want to describe his other actions. Look at chapter 7, verse 6. He says, how beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree. In Hebrew, the word for palm tree is tamar. And... uh, Tamar, you know has some bad associations, doesn't it? Uh, Genesis 38, Judah goes into his daughter-in-law Tamar, treats her like a prostitute and then second Samuel 13, uh, Amnon rapes his half-sister Tamar. And it's as though those bad associations are being are being reversed and and positive connotations are being are, are replacing these negative connotations of the word, Tamar, your stature is like, a, like Tamar, your breasts are like its clusters. I say I will climb Tamar, the, the palm tree, and lay hold of its fruit. Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine, and the scent of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. And then he goes on, or, or perhaps she begins to speak. She says here in the middle of verse 9, it goes down smoothly for my beloved, gliding over lips and teeth. And here's a major massive reversal in the Bible story Um, Genesis 316 the Lord says to the woman um, I will put pain and childbearing and and increase your pain there and then he says and your desire will be for your husband and he shall rule over you that word for desire is used three places in the Bible it's used in Genesis 3.16, your desire will be for your husband. Then it's used again in Genesis 4.7, where the Lord says to Cain, sin's desire is for you, and it's used right here in Genesis 7, uh, Song of Songs 7.10, where she says, I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. So, so what was broken in the curse in Genesis 3.16, it's as though it's set right here in Song of Songs 7.10. Come, my beloved, she says, let us go out into the fields and lodge in the villages. Let us go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded, whether the grape blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. Here's another reversal, another uh, replacement of negative connotations with positive ones here in verse 13. The mandrakes give forth fragrance. Where have we read about mandrakes? We read about mandrakes when... um, I think it was Rachel, purchased uh, her husband, Jacob, from Leah through the use of her son's mandrakes, something something like that. Negative connotation, but now, now that's being layered over with, with positive things. The mandrakes give forth their fragrance, and beside our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, O my beloved. So uh, I think what's happening in the Song of Solomon is... Um, Solomon is is taking up the Bible story and he's and he understands that he's the king in Jerusalem, and he understands that he's the descendant of David, and that the seed, a seed of David has been promised, who's going to to uh, accomplish salvation and establish the kingdom of God. And he's depicting that poetically. And he's depicting it as something like, a return to the Garden of Eden and a restoration of this pure and and perfect marital covenant, and and so there's this enjoyment of this lush garden, and, and it and it's like the land of promise, and there there's harmony where there was disharmony, there's there's unity where there was there was fractured relationships, and the curses picked up by Gen- by a Song of Songs seven ten have been reversed. And undone and rolled back, and and they enjoy, they enjoy God's goodness. Song of Songs 8:6. Set me as a seal on your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes, this is apparently the flashes of love and jealousy, are flashes of fire. The very flame of the Lord. It's as though Solomon, I think, is saying, um, the Lord's love is reflected in this, this human relationship. So does this depict a human relationship between an idealized Solomon and an idealized bride? Yes, absolutely. Does that point beyond itself to a marriage that is going to be renewed between God and his people? I think that matches the Bible story.